Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This episode of Red Inker is about the class system within English cricket. And that just happens to have been a book written about this recently called Different Class, The Untold Story of English Cricket. So I got the author on. So I'm Dr. Duncan Stone, and I'm an independent historian and the author of the forthcoming book, or soon to be out, Social History of English Cricket, called Different Class, The Untold Story of English Cricket. We chat about how the English class system still touches international cricket today, the media, private schools, parks, Azim Rafiq, ECB, TCCB, TV rights, and how the game makes obscure answers on quiz shows. When I first came to the UK, Duncan, other than the fact that being a bogan from Australia and having to suddenly sit in press boxes with only people from Eton, one of the things that I really realised was that I complained about something at Lords one day. On it was must have been the earlier days of Twitter or social media, and I got a bunch of people come up and say, "You have to understand that it's a members' ground. It's the members' ground." And I remember thinking, "Well, I'm an MCG member, right? And we call the MCG the people's ground. It feels like whatever happened in Australian cricket was almost like the opposite of a lot of other cricket cultures around the world who followed England." And I suddenly realised I was in a completely different world. Why did you want to write this book? It's a long story and it all stems back to when I did my master's degree 20 years ago. So the research into sport at that time, uh, 2001, was very, very raw. And most of the stuff dealt with, in terms of identity, dealt with nationalism in relation to mega events like the Olympics or international football, the World Cup. And a lot of the research dealt with sort of deviant behavior like football hooliganism particularly at the university I was at. But of course, cricket is, in this country, certainly the quintessentially English game. And yet during the lecture, I was thinking of the Yorkshire supporters, you know, chanting Yorkshire ad nauseum. And I asked the professor, I said, well, what about regional identities? And he said, well, nobody does it. But of course, nobody did back in 2001. And then from that question, this has been an itch that I've had to scratch on and off for yeah, the next 20 years. Uh, so I then, after a seven-year hiatus and a trip to the ill-fated ashes uh, when we lost 5-0, I ended up going to Huddersfield doing a PhD, which examined club cricket in the south of England. 
And that revealed that the suburbanization of the suburbs, what we call the Green Belt, led to a ban in meritocratic competition. So whereas club or recreational cricket in the Midlands and the north of England is synonymous with league cricket, mm. you know, we have this identity down south as we're all effect southerners and we don't play. It was what they called friendly cricket. Mm. And basically the book started off examining how did two entirely different cultures develop around the same game within the same country, let alone between Australia and England. So one of the things I was really interested in is, especially just over the last few days, Pat Cummins has become captain. And so a million people online are like, why don't we have bowling captains? And I, I have to say, well, this goes back to the way that cricket was structured through the class system. Essentially, more often than not, the batters were amateurs and the bowlers were professional. And there were more amateurs and there were, you know, um, who were batters and they were often the stars as well. They became captains. And over time, we just decided the bowlers couldn't captain. So when people say things like, oh, the class system, we've moved on. Not only have they not moved on in English cricket, these things still affect the global game, even in places like Australia, where you're seeing probably maybe the second ever bowling captain in the history of Australian cricket. So I looked at the last chapter of your book, because that's a bit more recent. Obviously, you go through, you know, the entire history. But can you start with what was the one game initiative in English cricket? That was uh, the ECB's marketing strategy. You know, it's like get Brexit done. It's just a <laughs> phrase that they probably hoped would garner them some extra funding from Sport England. Really, honestly, a lot of the stuff that the ECB and the Test and County Cricket Board and the MCC before them do in relation to broadening participation or is just PR. Ultimately, it never amounts to anything. And yes, the one game initiative was just a small phrase out of what probably a larger strategy for growing the game, uh, which is currently inspiring generations. <laughs> so through that, they must have known, though, that the game was being segregated. So it was, as you said, in various parts of the, of the country, there were working class routes and there was club cricket routes and everything. They must have realized around the one game initiative that that was no longer the case and that the West Indian diaspora had sort of left the game. And so you had a very middle class and upper class cricket culture. Otherwise, you wouldn't come up with something like that. Even if it's just PR, you probably wouldn't even think about doing something like that, would you? It'd be unlikely. Yeah. <laughs> I think to put it mildly, English cricket for the last 150 years has been run in the interests of white middle class men. And I'm afraid that remains the case today. You have, uh, initially it would be class prejudices. So the amateur professional distinction ensured the working class professionals, invariably bowlers, knew their place and they had their separate dressing rooms, separate entrances to the ground. And even though that was done away with in 1962, 63, we've not really moved on at all. Whereas the amateur ethos up to 1963, explicitly sought to either restrict or uh, working class participation on and off the field within the first class game. Since the McLaurin report, uh, 97, that has been unceremoniously jettisoned 
But the avaricious exploitation that your good friend Giles Clark essentially turned into an art form, that has the same effect. Taking domestic cricket, international cricket away from free-to-air television has essentially ensured that the game was, once again, run in the interests of a minority of subscribers. Whereas previously that was the subscribers to the county clubs, obviously after 2005, that meant the subscribers of Sky. And between two Home Ashes series, uh, four million viewers were disenfranchised. So uh, I think somebody referred to them as suits, even though the suits may appear to have embraced the rabid commercialism that the amateur generations, you know, the Pelham Warners and the Lord Hawks of this world would have thought beyond the pale, the results are the same. Working class participation is diminished. So it's fair to say that you basically what we went from was an 18 private members club situation to almost like a, well, a monopoly of it by the ECB and the same underlying problems were still there. So it didn't matter if the ECB were slightly more progressive and had their one game initiative or anything. The same problems were there because it's still being run by and for the same class of people. Yes, <laughs> undoubtedly. And obviously what we've had recently with Azim Rafiq, the exclusion of working class people, for the want of a better term, is most obvious in relation to the exclusion of obviously today, predominantly South Asian cricketers and supporters from first-class cricket and the recreational mainstream that feeds into it. And I suppose the other thing is that you hear a lot about, like, working class has become a code word for white people who don't have nice jobs, essentially. But realistically, working class also means the second and third generation West Indians who didn't feel comfortable in the game and so have moved on. And a similar thing could happen within the Asian group as well. So they're actually at a, a very dangerous point within English cricket where they could lose another big group of players who have grown up playing this sport, their parents have played this sport, and they don't feel particularly wanted by it because of the way that it's run. I mean, that's essentially what, as in Rafiq, for all the positives and negatives that came out of that, I said from the start, it wasn't really about him. It's that people like Azim Rafiq do not feel comfortable within this sport. That is the problem. Oh, yeah. I don't use this phrase in the book, but it occurred to me the other day. English cricket is in an advanced state of cultural decay, I'm sorry to say. And this goes all the way back from the amateur days, obviously. And the fact that the people who ran the MCC and all the subsequent organizations up to today have controlled the message almost entirely. My book, with the exception of I'd certainly say Roland Bowen and Mike Marcuse and C.L.R. James, you'd have to mention him, are the only sort of books that challenge this endless sort of stream of monoculture. Mm. You know, it's an upper-class monoculture. And unfortunately, I really believe it is a threat to the survival of English cricket as an authentic national sport. Because what I think is if we don't do something in the light of Azim Rafiq and the research that's come out that was covered by Sky in relation to privately educated players, we're going to find that uh, English cricket divides. And on at the first class level, you'll probably have a load of essentially privately white, privately educated players. And then you will have this 
sort of South Asian underclass that will be probably a really vibrant sort of realm of cricket, but it will be like never the twain shall meet. And that's really, really dangerous. And it, and unless things are done pretty quickly to address this in terms of integration, not just in terms of race, but I think in terms of class, then that is quite likely to happen. And the game, which is struggling for popularity as it is, I think a lot of people on cricket Twitter may be overestimating how popular cricket is in this country. Certainly, a lot of my friends, to quote Fat Boy, uh, hate cricket. Googlies, Quartasima, Karen, Dukes, Back of the Hand, Red, Leg Cutters, Tisra, Pink, Knuckle, White, Slider, Seed, Heavy, Bounces, Cherry, Length, Pill, Off Cutters, Old, Crimson Traveller, Kookaburra, Hard, Outswing, Second New, Offspin, Arm, SG, Split Finger, Shiny, Leg Spin, Soft, New, Yorkers, Flippers, Wrongens, Long Hops, Reverse Swing, Half Volley, and Third New. These are just some of the names we use for balls in cricket. Well, Manscaped wants you to be as proud of your balls as you are of the ones delivered by your favourite cricketer. Manscaped just launched their fourth generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. Join over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer 20% off and free worldwide shipping. Insert the code REDINCA at manscaped.com. I've actually used this, um, not just something that I'm hawking for fun. And I got to admit, I thought it was a bit silly. And then I went down there and it was exceptional. I honestly feel I could bowl outswing with one nut and in swing with the other. So get 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code REDINCA at manscaped.com. Manscaped, for the man who cares about his balls as much as the ones out in the middle. It's an interesting one because it swings back and forward, but I was... Uh, me and Peter Della Pena are obsessed with cricket questions on the show Pointless because Pointless is the greatest quiz show I've ever seen for combining. Like basically in England, you have two kinds of quiz shows. You have people throwing darts at things and you have University Challenge where you have to have literally studied at Cambridge or Oxford to understand the question. Not get it right, just understand it to begin with. And then Pointless comes along, which is a show that basically appeals to everyone and works perfectly. And so when you get the results of cricket on that and you realise how easy it is to get a pointless score, which is the, the perfect score on that show, by just answering a question on cricket, tells you how few people actually know that much about the game. I think they had the, I can't remember if it was the 13 or 14 Ashes team and you had to name the players and people could name about five players on the tour or something. I mean, it is quite bad at times, but then it obviously swings around when there is a major series or a World Cup. But there's a lot of people who just know it through the BBC, which means it's the same way they follow tennis or athletics. They're not really tennis or athletics fans. They just watch it at a certain time of the year for a couple of weeks. They don't play it. They aren't part of the culture, and they do feel excluded. It's a huge problem. Absolutely. I've got a million anecdotes, not just about weird game shows. Not to mention that my favourite time ever being asked a Q&A for my film, Death of a Gentleman, was when someone asked me what was wrong with the future of cricket in England. And I said, well, this is a Q&A at Waitrose. We're not at Aldi's, which are two different class of supermarkets, which might tell you, if you're not from the UK, might tell you a lot about the UK that it's separated that much. But to go on. So we talk about the sort of the separation, the one game initiative. It then goes into what is the cricket reform group? Because I'd heard of that before, but I learned more about it in your book than I did probably anywhere else. 
So the Cricket Reform Group was a body established by Mike Atherton, Bob Willis, uh, Mike Parkinson, Bob Willis's brother, and there was a businessman who has subsequently got embroiled in a rugby league scandal in relation to financial fair play or something like that. Saracens, but I can't remember his name. I said Mike Ray. That would be him. That would be him, yeah. So obviously we need to roll back to 2003 when the report came out and obviously county cricket was really in the doldrums from the late 90s up to really the 2005 Ashes. It was a non-event and it was pretty obvious for anyone with their eyes open that 18 professional counties is probably 10 too many. So what the Cricket Reform Group suggested was creating three conferences, but you had one premier conference of six teams, which was supported by two regional conferences, if I remember correctly, and you know, north and south. And the idea was that at 450, there were too many professional cricketers of not the requisite standard earning a living in the game. And the idea was to, much like the Australian Sheffield Shield, was to concentrate the talent and hothouse things and just make the elite of English cricket, like truly elite, and then have the other lower conferences feeding into the top of the recreational game. And you would hopefully, through that process, have a greater progression of well, the meritocratic progression of talented players from the club to the professional arena and then ultimately international cricket. But of course, it was uh, voted down by the counties who were obviously self-interested and that was the last opportunity we had to really reform cricket before 2020 was introduced and in the 2005 Ashes and the loss of free-to-air coverage in the country. So, you know, that ship has sailed, sadly, despite the Bob Willis Trophy during lockdown, which was very fitting. Yeah, considering he tried to change the whole thing. Was their manifesto really making English cricket great again, or did you just, like, is that a joke? I think they genuinely were on the right track. You know, English county cricket has not been able, in a financial sense, to wash its own face since it was established. Mm. There's always been too many counties. And as much as some people would argue that it did remain the national game up to maybe the 1950s or 60s, I personally think a lot of that image is down to basically the media in this country uh, papering over the cracks for 50, 60 years. Today, we, we have a cricket media that are actually prepared to ask the powers that be hard questions. I mean, don't expect uh, TMS to do that, but uh, certainly people like yourself with your documentary and, uh, you know, obviously George Dobble and people like him. We've got a media now who are actually, hold on, you've had a free reign for too long now. What are you doing with the game that we obviously all love so much? So I'm hoping the media will start doing the job that, you know, people like Neville Cardus and his ilk back in the 50s, they were acolytes for client journalism, we would call it today. So, yeah, I think cricket and the powers that be within cricket are going to face some serious scrutiny and probably for the first time since the 1950s or the immediate post-war period, certainly. Well, I think part of it was that for a generation, the same people who were running cricket were writing about it. 
So, I mean, I made my Eaton joke before, but it's not quite at that level as it once was, although it still is, which meant that the editors also came from that. So they came from good schools. There's probably been a more of a democratization of the media in some ways, you know, um, and not, not enough. And so now editors are coming through who don't have cricket backgrounds, right? They don't come from cricket families. So cricket journalists have to get their copy in. They have to say, well, no, this is why we have to write about that. This is why this is a story. Whereas beforehand, it was like, no, of course we'll get a journalist down at the Oval. And of course we'll have someone at Chelmsford. Whereas I don't know if you know this, but the ECB actually pay for county cricket to be covered. Mm. They pay the journalists to go to the ground because essentially all these editors got together and went, why would we be involved? And then the agency said the same thing. So when I started covering cricket in the UK, there was a writer from the Times and a writer from the Guardian. And these are at county games. Small, you know, this would be at Kent, not even the bigger grounds. And mm-hmm. now you don't get anyone like that anymore. And you get usually one person who's there because they're being paid by the ECB, either directly or indirectly, to write. So that shows you how far it fell. But also the fact that the media probably did prop it up for a very long time. Oh, und- undoubtedly, yeah. I think there's a broader context to that. I mean... Um journalism as a profession, it's part of the gig economy. I mean, mm-hmm. how many journalists are working for nothing? Despite the fact that obviously a lot of the people, you know, again, there's an overrepresentation of the privately educated mm-hmm. in journalism overall. I think um, in terms of uh, cricket coverage and certainly in relation to the Murdoch media and Sky, the fact that once they bought the Premier League rights, that's the only show in town. Mm-hmm. And Basically, the valuable column inches that were, would have been devoted to cricket in the summer months. It's football 52 weeks a year now. It's the only show in town, unfortunately. And because cricket has been out of the public eye since 2005, it's not newsworthy. Mm. You know, if you go to the trouble of sending a correspondent and, you know, knocking up a piece on whatever, who's actually going to read it? No, definitely. I think of a couple of projects I've tried to get up. So Death of a Gentleman was the first one where we could not sell it to anyone. They were just like, why on earth would anyone watch this film on cricket? And we're like, you're going to have to trust us. We know what we're doing. And they didn't. And we ended up proving at the very least that you could actually get people to watch that sort of film. But I had two other projects as well, which were one was a cricket sitcom, another one was a cricket comic book. And they were just like, we're not going to do it. Like, there's no market there. And they're partly right. It's also, it's probably swung back too far the other way now, that there are actually enough people that if you do something correctly, so much of this is, it goes in one direction too far and then the other direction too far. But certainly, people within the media industry at the moment, if you say the word cricket, there is a notable yawn before you've finished your sentence. And they just think there's no money, there isn't a big enough audience, and it's a dead sport. So it's really, really interesting. I want to get to the privately educated things, because you just mentioned that. I'll just say, just imagine how difficult it was for me to find a publisher. <laughs> I, I don't have to, Duncan, because I've written so many cricket books. So we're okay. <laughs> I, did a, I did a book on the history of Test Cricket, and uh, no one wanted it in the UK. So I'm more than aware of, of how bad it is, sadly. But privately educated players. So in your book, you talk about how 35% of, I think this is first-class players, I'm assuming, are privately educated. That has led to a charity, which is Mervyn King got involved. Obviously, Martin Nicholas is involved. So you've got Chance to Shine. There's two other things. I swear I had never heard of these until I read your book, which tells you a lot. The African Caribbean Cricket Conference and the National Mm -hmm. Asian Cricket Council. Those are both UK entities 
that are supposed to be helping African, Caribbean and, and Asian people within cricket in the UK. Is that right? Yeah. Who funds them and what do they do? Because I don't know. Well, I talk about their sort of establishment by, ironically, so the villain of my book in terms of the banning of meritocratic competition in the form of cups and leagues in the south of England was an organization, is an organization called the Club Cricket Conference. Yeah. They then had a complete damping conversion because their chairman was a black man, uh, Alf Langley, absolute hero of mine. And he basically said, after the intervention of one of their member clubs, a South Asian club called Walsham, who were banned from mainstream ECB Saturday leagues and all of the ECB's National Cup competitions, despite being very talented players. And Alf basically took it upon himself to turn the club cricket conference into a force for good, for change. And they helped with the establishment of both of those organizations. But uh, despite thinly veiled attempts to take credit for their formation, initially at least, the ECB did not provide any funding. I think that was all down to fundraising and the conference itself. Today, however, certainly uh, the National Asian Cricket Council, that would be at least part funded by the ECB. But um, I didn't go into that much detail on that. It was just their sort of emergence that I wanted to sort of highlight in the book. The other thing that you talked about was you said the number of South Asian professionals has fallen from 36 in 2011 to just 22 in 2020. And the figures for black British professionals playing first-class cricket are even starker, having declined from more than 100 in the 1980s to just eight in 2019. I mean, I remember John Etheridge, and like, I'm, I'm friends with John, but I remember when Death of a Gentleman came out and he said, it's my job to write about men in boots, not men in suits. And thinking that's kind of how these things happen, right? Like, I get it. I do understand that the best thing to put on the back page of the paper is Freddie Flintoff having failed or Freddie Flintoff having taken eight wickets and the hero and the villains and all that sort of stuff. But it's like, that is incredible, the drop-off in both of those areas. And it's basically what I was talking about before. I remember when the whole thing about the Black Lives Matter movement came out, my wife was saying to me, they just need to hire more black coaches. Like, it's obvious. And I said, they would, but they basically pushed all black people out of the game. Like, I don't know who they would hire at this point. So there were 20, I think I've got this right, mate. There were 26, no, 27 professional coaches of men's teams, head coaches in the UK last year. So that's the 100 and the county teams. Mm -hmm. And of those 27, Mark Elaine was the only black person who I think he got his job back last year. Um, So he had been sacked. That's right. He had been in the wilderness. Vikram Solanke was the only British Asian coach and Mahela J. Awardner coached the Southern Braves. There's four or six Australians, two or three South Africans, two or three New Zealanders as Zimbabwean off the top of my head without me even having to go into the numbers too much. Like quite clearly, Mm. there's a problem here with the entire game. It's not just about the players, is it? No, far from it. This is why my book is unlike probably any other, because I'm actually really only interested in what happens off the field. <laughs> you know, that's that's where the real mm. sort of nub of the game happens. But I think in terms of uh, the way the recreational game was managed, you can call this institutional or structural racism, if you like, but 
according to Alf Langley, who I interviewed extensively for the book, the demise of certainly West Indian clubs was inbuilt into the structure of English recreational cricket because they were never allowed to, and this is another dimension of class, invariably black British or black South Asian British clubs rely on municipal grounds Mm. and invariably, especially in an age of austerity, local councils can't afford to maintain good facilities. So even though you had some seriously talented players knocking around there as a club, they would never be accepted into mainstream leagues. So what you had was essentially the occasional, like say in the eighties, every club would have wanted their own West Indian quick, wouldn't they? Mm. But of course, you know, the odd player here or there, yeah, it's integration of a sort, but ultimately, and I think there was a generational issue that Alf touched upon where I think the original generation of West Indians certainly treated it as a male preserve Mm. and didn't necessarily encourage the youngsters to sort of come along. Nevertheless, even if that happened at certain clubs, the fact that they were hitting a brick wall, glass ceiling, whatever you want to call it, each time they were trying to better themselves, trying to join the predominantly white recreational mainstream, ultimately meant that the majority of these clubs perished. And now you've got a few clubs in Leeds who've still got the original Caribbean Cricket Club, which survives from 1948, I think. But a lot of the clubs that would have been established in the sort of the 50s and 60s have fallen by the wayside, much like, regrettably, the workplace sport that was happening in the post-war period, which was probably the most successful example of what we would call race relations in the country. But deindustrialization, privatization of certain industries ultimately meant that a lot of these grounds were either demolished or sold off as valuable but unprofitable assets. And obviously, what broader attack on trade unionism means we're all working longer hours now. And I used to work for the police in Surrey. And whereas I would have a senior officer come down and tell me to go home and get me boots because I was either playing football against Malta <laughs> or cricket against the Garda from Ireland that afternoon. By the time I left, the cricket pitch was a car park. All of this infrastructure, irrespective of the selling off of more than 10,000 state school playing fields, means that you know cricket, as bad as the ECB have run the game, broader factors have really, really damaged the game in terms of working class participation. So the fact you've got no black or South Asian coaches is one matter, but I'd imagine even like the Australian coaches or the South African coaches probably went through a similar educational system to many of the English ones. Probably not in the Australian coaches, but the South African and the Zimbabwean ones certainly would have. Australia's probably, here's here's your future book, Australia might be the only close to working class cricket culture that dominates. Mm. West Indies probably in modern times is a bit more like that, but not obviously not always traditionally. But for whatever reason, cricket spread in Australia much more like a form of football, which is why you have MCG crowds throwing urine and golf balls at players. I've been there, mate. 
<laughs> yeah, which is you don't get everywhere else. But but the other thing is that you, it's really interesting because obviously we can blame the counties and the ECB for a lot of these problems. But as you just said, there are much wider issues here. One of the other things is after the 1950s, cricket was sort of sold as a throwback sport to the good old days of the English Empire and whenever on wore whites and the amateurs and all this sort of stuff, which meant that in other places like Pakistan, it's a street game and India, it's a street game and West Indies and Sri Lanka, it's a beach game and, you know, Australia and New Zealand, it's a backyard game. And that sort of twist allows for the fact that a lot of Australian cricketers and New Zealand cricketers grow up playing on synthetic pitches. Right, And if you try and get a bunch of English cricketers on a synthetic pitch, the way they turn their nose up, and even if they're from a working-class background, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Cricket over here is seen as it has to be played on a beautiful village ground. The ground has to be looked after by some old guy who rolls around. And all those sorts of things, which they probably don't understand, actually makes it more expensive. The reason that all the Australian grounds went to synthetic wickets is because the councils run the grounds, and they were like, we're going to give you guys a couple of proper pitches when you get to the proper level of cricket. But to get there, you have to be very good on matting or synthetic wickets. It's like every layer of English cricket is set up to stop other people getting to that level. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I mean, English cricket is fetishized to within an inch of its life. That's the best line I've ever heard. That might be the title of this. <laughs> I played social cricket when I lived in Canberra on artificial wickets, and I didn't realize you weren't allowed to do anything above waist height. I was the no ball thing, but uh, I played uh, South Yarra when I lived in Melbourne, uh, which obviously has a grass wicket. But I think, yeah, there's a level of snobbery at all levels of English cricket. And again, this is an argument that was made by another interviewee, Taj Butt from Bradford, about the South Asian Action Plan, in that the ECB are pigeonholing, saying that essentially South Asian players belong in parks. They're going to throw a lot of money at the community in terms of in the installation of artificial wickets and a few grass ones, to be fair. But of course, no league's going to accept any of these clubs. Yeah. If they're playing on an art, you know, they are literally banishing them. They're uh, killing them with kindness <laughs> in some respects. Because yeah. by helping them in that specific way, it means they'll never break in. Yeah, they're making it like a subculture of cricket then. Yeah. So in Australian country cricket, quite often you will turn up at a ground and it will be synthetic and then the next game will be matting and the game after that will be turf. That's a, a very common thing. But everyone accepts that as, in fact, the same thing happens in America. They've got the minor league cricket in America at the moment. And I think there's a couple of games that are on matting, but a couple that are synthetic and a couple on turf. But you have to accept that as a league going in. Otherwise, you're creating a subculture that won't ever get released in. Let's just finish off with the ECB. You got this from being outside cricket, which is incredible stats, which if I read it on that side at the time, I must have missed. But in 2017, they said that ECB and TCCB chairman, which was the, the organization before, 80% of them were public schooled. And by public school, we mean privately educated at the top schools in England. 67.5% of the chairman of selectors were also privately educated or public schooled in English speak. And 65% of the test captains over the previous four, that's all over the 40 year span. We're not talking back to Gubby Allen and, and Plum Warner and some of the ridiculous, what's his name? The guy who went on to be a Hollywood actor after captaining England in a couple of test matches in the 1800s. We're talking about modern people 
right, yeah. who play cricket and we see them as normal cricketers. Uh, you know, if you're a cricket fan from outside England, you see them as a normal cricketer. But these are people that all went to this level of school. So when Giles Clark says that Alistair Cook and his family are the right kind of family, that's like a code word, isn't it, for what you were talking about all the way through this book? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm sorry to say, but I stopped listening to TMS due to one very specific conversation that uh, I think Graham Swan was having with uh, Jonathan Agnew. And they were talking about schools cricket and, you know, the values of schools cricket. You knew exactly who they're talking about, you know, but they don't even realise they're doing it. But I've never listened to TMS since, to be honest. Because, you know, going back to what I said earlier about English cricket is in this advanced state of cultural decay. You know, this monoculture, whether it's turning your nose up at an artificial wicket or the England team taking the field to the strains of Jerusalem. Well, that's not my England. <laughs> you know, whose England is that? Well, that's the right kind of family's England, isn't it? And I would like be pretty good money that it's not a 15-year-old South Asian lad from Bradford's England either. So rather than broaden the appeal of the England team, you know, things like Jerusalem really restrict it. I'm sure 99% of England supporters who join in with that irritating trumpet player, that wouldn't even cross their mind because they're surrounded by other white, broadly speaking, middle-class people. But I think if English cricket is to survive another 100, 200 years, these are quite obvious but subtle things that need to be addressed mm. because it's that unconscious bias thing sort of rearing its head again. It takes very subtle forms. It says everything to how good a game cricket is because a lot of the stuff that I've uncovered during the research for this book over the last 13 years has certainly tried me, but I still love the game, which is why I really hope that, you know, the book is going to hopefully engender some changes, you know, and as in Rafiq has set in train, because there are changes that really need to happen and sooner rather than later, I'd argue. When it comes down to it, the changes that need to be made, there is clearly a problem within English cricket because all these organisations that we've talked about so far that they've tried to come up with, the 100 is another example of this. It's quite clear that something has gone wrong within the sport and the way that it has been pushed to people. And you cannot allow it to continue to shrink unless that's what the original idea was. And when you say how good the sport is, this has always been my thing. When I did my book on the history of Test Cricket, the one thing I realised was how badly it was run everywhere. So obviously England is the major part of that, but how badly it was run in Australia and how badly it was run in other countries and how class problems and ethnic problems and island problems in the West Indies, everything was always fighting against each other. And you think, yeah. but coming into the 1980s, you could argue even more so now, it's never been a more global game. It's probably never been played at the level that it's been played before. It's because the sport is absolutely brilliant, but we have never really had a sustained period of even competent governance right across the game. I'm not even saying good governance. That's a dream, Duncan, that, I will, oh, no. that I, I've given, long given up on. Just competent governance of this sport would be enough to turn it into what it should be, which is probably one of the top two or three most popular sports in the world. Yeah. Once people get this in their blood, it's like football. It doesn't go out. It's just that we have created a system to stop people even getting interested in cricket. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you sort of said, but in the English case, it was by design. Yeah. You know, the early chapters of my book, and these aren't my words, I'm just quoting <laughs> the words of the various administrators back at us a century 
hence. But note that they deliberately, and amateurism, the ethos of amateurism in many sports, athletics, rugby union in this country, was specifically designed to make working class participation difficult. The sense of ownership that uh, the middle and upper classes had over cricket in this country was frankly remarkable, bordering on psychotic. (laughs) (laughs) And even though ostensibly post-McLaurin, the ECB, it's all money, money, money and exposure, it's had the opposite effect, or rather it's just maintained the same effect. Mm. Again, a lot of these things are perhaps unintended consequences today, but certainly pre-McLaurin, they deliberately made the game less popular. There's no doubt about that. The evidence is throughout the book. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, you obviously look at it from an English point of view, and I look at it from an international point of view, but I think of how much Ireland, America, and Argentina, even places like Denmark, all had flare-ups of cricket where they played really good cricket. And cricket went out of its way to make sure that none of them became test-playing nations at that point, right? So it all comes from England, but it's obviously a, a far wider issue. But thank you so much. The name of your book is... Different Class, The Untold Story of English Cricket. Sports Social Podcast Network.